Spencer, snow is melting, roads and trails are clear. I tell you, it's gravel racing season coming up here in Colorado. Right now, we have some uh, interesting new gravel races on the horizon. Tell me about this uh, this new race you're going to be doing. Yeah, Fred, we're excited to head out to Wild Horse Gravel, which is part of the Roll Massif series in a few weeks here in May. It's out in western Colorado on this ranch that's very remote. Should be very cool. The terrain, I honestly don't know what to expect at all. The good thing is one of our sponsors for the gravel series is Vittoria Tires. And they have this great line of Torino tires and it's sort of a wide variety of, uh, of tread patterns and everything, tubeless ready. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be the right setup. I'm sure I can find a tire that'll be perfect for there. Yeah, out there on the Western Slope, you get the dust, you get the sand, you get some rocky stuff too. You get some single track, Spencer. And the Cowboys, you gotta watch out for the Cowboys. Well, we're gonna be covering lots and lots of gravel races here on VeloNews.com with the VeloNews podcast, so stay tuned. And Spencer, we're gonna see how well you fare against those Cowboys on the mm-hmm. gravel bikes. On with the show. Welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer, uh, joined today in the flesh by Spencer Paulison. Hey. Spencer, I'm back from the classics. Did you miss me? I missed you a lot, Fred, but I liked following along all of your exploits, hearing from you and Hoodie on the podcast. I hope you guys all enjoyed the regular updates from the classics, because, I mean, it's just one of the best times of the season. Oh, it was so great. I'm not going to lie. You know, I had a bit of a rough transition back into regular civilian life where... uh, I'm walking around, you know, the United States here. There's no chocolate shops everywhere. Um, I'm riding my bike. It's not like in the low countries where, you know, everyone rides a bike. It's just it's just a little bit different out here. But nobody's stolen your bike yet since you got back, so that's <sighs> nice. It's true. Got everyone, keep, for you. <laughs> if you're in Roubaix, keep an eye open for a big size 61 bike. Uh, Spencer, we are joined by Andy Hood, who's back at the Man Cave in Spain. Andy, what are you missing about our trip to the low countries well the the weather up here in northern spain is pretty 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 much belgian so i'm not missing that i kind of wish i was hoping for a little bit more sun but it's been kind of uh some gloomy weather up here in northern spain a lot of uh, easter processions you know it's up here and this is catholic country they love their easter semana santa uh uh you know parades they put on haul around their little uh, virgin marys and on these uh it's quite cultural it's quite beautiful i've been hitting those every night uh they also have this stuff called limonada which is kind of a sangria so uh watch out swapping swapping out the beer belgian beer for uh, some sangria leave it to hoodie to find uh, an alcohol associated with any given holiday yeah. to celebrate with. This is my Easter hooch. Yeah, good on you, Eddie. I was going to ask what kind of specialties we had up there for Easter, and that that's my answer. Hoodie, I got to admit, man, it's just not the same uh, sitting around the old dinner table at our Ghent apartment, um, you know, looking at you through the computer screen is is nice and all, but it's just not the same being in the same room. Yeah, it was, it was a fun couple of weeks, Fred. We had a nice little setup there in Kent, uh, just talking shop every day, talking bike races. And, uh, you know, I miss you guys. Well, we have bike races to talk about today because we had an amazing bike race happen on Sunday. We're recording this Monday morning. It was the Amstel Gold Race, a race that I feel like in years past had been accused of being a bit sleepy because of the predictable finish on the Cowberg, but in recent years with the move of the finish, making it a little bit more tactical, Guys, we saw amazing racing in both the women's race, which was won by Kasha Nuiadoma, and the men's race, which saw perhaps the most thrilling come from behind victory 
I have ever seen in a bike race. Matthew Vanderpool, the guy we all had our eyes on, was able to win the race. But Spencer, you were watching this men's race. What was your reaction in the final few kilometers? Oh, Fred, I was out of my seat. I couldn't believe it. I was yelling at the TV. The dogs were freaking out. I was watching Vanderpool pull this chase group up to the two leaders, up to Julian Alaphilippe and Jakob Fulsang. And I was just thinking, what are you doing, man? Don't pull them all the way there. Why are you, why are you doing that? And, and then he, he hit the afterburners. I don't know where he found that extra burst of speed to outsprint those guys. It was, it was just unreal how he could ride people off his wheel like that. Yeah, the name of the game for this race was Matthew Vanderpool winning despite uh, making a few tactical errors, despite being caught out a few times. Um, I mean, the, the real telling statistic for me was with seven kilometers to go, the gap between Alaphilippe and Fuglesang, who were riding out front, I mean, both really seasoned pros, both professionals, race winners in their own right, the gap from them back to the Vanderpool group, 55 seconds. I have seen, though, Fred, some stories coming in the aftermath of Amstel about some questions of the time gaps. I think that Alaphilippe was maybe maybe accusing the organizers of being a bit inaccurate in their uh, in their time gap updates. I'm not sure really what happened there. That's a convenient excuse for Mr. Alaphilippe, though. So the blow by blow, I'll, t- I'll take us in from about 45K to go. Uh, you know, uh, the, the group was together. It was another twisty, windy, um, tactical day at Amstel on these windy, sinuous roads there in Limburg. And with 44K to go, Matthew Vanderpool was actually the man who fired the afterburners first. He attacked on the Guipenberg. Mm, my favorite. The, uh, uh, Big Guipenberg? Mm, let's, uh, no. we're going to have to do the Google pronunciation yeah. thing. One of the Big Bergs. And he uh, attacked solo. And to me, it seemed like one of those all chips are on the table attacks where huge effort went into it. He got a huge gap. Eventually, uh, Gorka Izaguerra? Yes. Mm-hmm. Joined him. My favorite is Aguera by far. Yeah, Gorka. Love that Gorka. And they were out there by themselves, and it was just, it was a Berg too soon. You could tell that they put a tremendous amount of effort into this attack, and they were reeled in. And then moments later, the move of the day went on the Kreuzberg, which was Julian Alaphilippe, Jakob Fuglesang, chased by Matteo Trentin and Mikhail Kwiatkowski. And if you looked back when this move was going, you saw Vanderpool in the group. And he looked tired. He was actually sag climbing on the Kreuzberg. Yeah, he was doing the yo-yo. And uh, you had to think that he was cooked by that point because what a huge attack he had earlier, like you said, around 44K to go. Way too early. Let's, let's face it. Come so, on. So this group uh, out front, you have Alaphilippe and you have Fuglesang, and they have a gap on Trenton and Kwiatkowski. And then the peloton is languishing a minute or so back. And that's what takes us basically from 30K into oh, 5K to go. And from that point, it just seemed like it seemed like there was no way that Vanderpool Group was going to catch up. It seemed like there was no way that anyone other than Alaphilippe and Fuglesang, and, and let's be fair, it just seemed like this was a Julian Alaphilippe oh. has Jakob Fuglesang's number. It seemed predestined. I was looking at that and being like, sorry, Jakob, got another second place coming to you in a moment. <laughs> like, sorry, buddy, you're not going to outsprint Alaphilippe. And well, that's what happened was that it seemed like in the last 2K, maybe Fuglesang stopped pulling. As well he should. As well he should. Disrupted the rhythm of that front two, which, you know, it allowed Mikkel Kwiatkowski to catch back on. I didn't think that was going to be much of anything because I still expected Alaphilippe to catch. And then all of a sudden, the camera pans back with 1,500 meters to go. And holy cow, 
there's Matthew Vanderpool on the front of this group towing everybody up. Well, and also, I think it's easy to forget, since since Vanderpool pulled off such a crazy move there in the end, it's easy to forget that Kwiatkowski blew by Philippe and Fulsong and pulled them into the final kilometer for at least like two, three hundred meters with, I, I didn't quite understand that tactic. Maybe he was just trying to stay on the podium, finish third. Either way, it was a, it was a weird, it was a weird tactic in my mind. And then, yes, go on with the Vanderpool. Uh, so he pulls from 1500 meters, then takes, basically starts his sprint at 600 meters. Oh yeah. And catches these guys, well, I don't know, 200 meters to go, and just pips them across the line. It's so unbelievable that Vanderpool himself reaches up and puts his hand on his face. He's so, he just can't believe what he has just accomplished. No one can believe what they have co- he's accomplished. Hoodie, my man, my question for you as a man who has watched lots and lots of dramatic one day uh, classics, like when was the last time you can remember a come from behind win like this? Yeah, this was just impressive in so many ways. I mean, it harkens back to what he did just at Tour de Flanders a couple of weeks ago. I mean, this guy is just amazing. He can do everything. Uh, you know, in this kind of modern racing these days, the level is so high. We're seeing guys race conservatively because they have maybe one match, maybe two matches to burn. But Vanderpool, man, he's got a whole book of matches to burn, and he still has some uh, extra octane there at the end. It's like, what do you compare this to? I mean, this is uh, this is something I think we haven't seen in a generation. This is like, uh, you know, kind of what Sagan was doing when he first started out. Ah, this is like everyone's comparing it to, you know, Eddie Merckx's uh, rookie season, maybe Greg LeMond back in the day were doing these, these crazy things. I mean, no one can make sense of it. Here's a guy who just comes onto the scene, and he, he said last week his ambition was to maybe be in the fight for one of these big races. But here he is winning these huge world tour level races, you know, right there in the mix, winning this race like his dad did, winning it in the Dutch jersey in what is going to be his last road race this entire season. It's just incredible. It did remind me a little of uh, some vintage Sagan moments where you just watch him race and Kiss, it's it's he's a Superman. He can't he can't he can't go wrong. Now that's because I feel like some of the conventional wisdom we have around these one day classics, which is that they're so long and so hard that he who wins has to be strong, but also ri- ri- you know ride a flawless race. Vanderpool is bucking that trend. I mean, we talked about the attack with 44K to go that seemed like he was down and out. You know, we looked at uh, earlier this week, he won Brabant's appeal and he led the sprint out against Julian Alaphilippe and Michael Matthews. That's just, you know, conventional wisdom says he who leads out the sprint is not going to win. I mean, Tour of Flanders, he was fourth, but he crashed on his face. I mean, he was sprawled out all over the ground. Conventional wisdom says if that happens to you in a race that's as long and as hard as the Tour of Flanders, you're not catching back on, let alone going to the front and attacking. So what stands out to me about Matthew Vanderpool right now is his ability to overcome um, these situations that conventional wisdom says dooms a rider at this, at this level. And I think this also goes back to what you were saying about the changed course for Amstel Gold, Fred, and how that sort of supports this type of finish. It's a little more unpredictable, got a little bit of a breakaway action, that sort of thing. 
uh, maybe this is a nice time for you to apologize for your take a few years ago saying that uh, Amstel Gold should always finish on top of the Cowbird. I know. I was an Amstel traditionalist. I loved being able to just tune in for the last sprint up the hill. Uh, but <laughs> That's yeah. what Flesh Wallone is for. Yeah, stick, it's along, true. stick around for the Mir de Huy in a no, few days. Keep, yeah. keep the finish. We don't need the Cowbird sprint no. anymore. No. Uh, this was plenty exciting. So, all right. Well, looking at these springtime results, uh, fourth again, Wevelgem, victory at Dwarzer of Land, and fourth the Tour of Flanders, uh, that win at stage one of the Circuit de Sarth, where, I mean, it's like, it was like cartoonish. Have you seen that TV angle where it's from the finish line and the sprint's coming in and then all of a sudden Vanderpool seems to be traveling about four times faster than everyone in the field and just zips across the line. Mm. That's insane. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we have, he won at Brabant Peel and his win at Amstel. I mean, Hoodie, we have to wonder, like, you know, what what is next for Matthew Vanderpool? You said it before. I mean, that's that's the end of his road racing calendar. So, I mean, what's he doing now? Just riding mountain bikes? What comes next for him? Yeah, it's a terrible tease, isn't it? I mean, here he comes, shows up on the scene, blows the wheels off everybody. and says, okay, guys, I'm checking out. Uh, the plan is, according to his father, told me when I talked to him last week in the Classics, he's going to shift gears in the mountain biking. He wants to win the gold medal in Tokyo next summer. So he's going to race the full World Cup calendar and then race the World Mountain Bike Championships. There is a rumor now that he might try to race the Road Worlds in Yorkshire. That's just something that came out this weekend. So there is that scenario, perhaps, of seeing him being the world champion across all three disciplines. That'd be pretty big. That would be crazy. And the first cross-country World Cup is going to be May 18th through 19th. He's got a few weeks to chill out, drink a few uh, Amstels, I guess. Um, He definitely was celebrating afterward. He had some pretty funny Instagram stories on Sunday night. He had some weird, like, sparkler cocktail or flaming cocktail or something. Good good for him. He's a young kid. He's got to celebrate once in a while. Now, Hoodie, there's been a lot of questions online about why didn't he do Paris-Roubaix? Why didn't he do Liege-Bestone-Liege? You know, that yeah, it's his debut road season at the Classics, but why didn't Matthew Vanderpool sign up for more of these hard one-day races? Do you have any intel there? Well... The reason on Robay was that, you know, a lot of times behind the scenes, especially with these invitational teams, there's a lot of negotiations that go on between the race organizers and these teams. You know, part of the deal is, okay, we're going to bring you to our race. You need to bring your star riders. And there's a lot of kind of back and forth that goes on for these wild card invitations. And uh, the, the, the word was from his father said that they were in negotiation with ASO for them to race Perry-Roubaix this year. But they just felt that was a little bit too much for Vanderpool's first debut season. I mean, they didn't expect any of this to happen themselves. This was not this was not what they expected to see Matthew do in his first real crack at the at the Northern Classics. So they, they just felt that, um, plus with the opportunity to race Sunday yesterday in the Dutch National Jersey in the Amstel Gold Race, it was like once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for Vanderpool to do that. So they just thought, you know, you do Flanders – and you do Romance Peel, and then you come in and you can do uh, Amstel Gold with fresher legs. And you saw uh, other riders who did Robay, they were not as fresh this Sunday after the you know the brutal punishing over the Pave. So the word was there was an invitation on the table, and Corinthian Circus decided not to take it this year. Word is he'll be racing next year Robay. And for Liege, I just think that you know Amstel Gold was kind of the peak of the of this spring campaign. 
you know, racing in the national Jersey. Now, as, as Spencer just pointed out, you know, the mountain bike season is just around the corner. So you got to give the guys some, a chance to cool his jets. Yeah. I probably didn't want to race Perry Ruby either. We'd get his bike stolen. You know, <laughs> you know he's a tall guy. There. I mean, yeah. it's, 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 <laughs> a, it's a, it's a ring, <laughs> ring of thieves that are yeah. looking for 63 centimeter bikes. Watch out. Tall guy racing bikes. It's getting, a niche. It's a niche. Getting stolen in Roubaix. I think the other uh, question that I hear hoodie a lot from uh, people in my circles is, well, it's just a matter of time before uh, Team Sky or Quick Step or someone drives a dump truck full of money up to Matthew Vanderpool's house and signs him a la Walt Van Aert with Yumbo Visma. It sounds like, though, that the situation he has going with Corindon and with Canyon, it might be it might be a situation that prevents something like that happening. Why isn't Matthew Vanderpool uh, just guaranteed to go sign for the highest bidder on a world tour team right now? Yeah, that's right. Uh, he's under contract with this current team, Corinthian Circus, through 2022. So f- several more years with a long-term deal. Part of that deal is, as you just mentioned, Canyon, the bike sponsor. They got these other sponsors lined up for him. The team is essentially built around him. He's a multifaceted rider. He likes to do different things. He wants to race mountain bikes. He wants to race cyclocross. He wants to dabble on the road. He's a young guy. He's full of beans. But he doesn't want to have to be just always hammering and have that just strict sacrifice everything to race on the road. That's what would it take. And if he goes to a uh, world tour team, someone's going to pay him five million bucks a year, which is probably what he'd get. You know, he'd be already one of the highest paid riders in the Peloton. And if he goes to a Team Sky Ineos, he goes to a quick step, he goes, maybe adios, Olympics, forget cyclocross. You're now a roadie. We're paying you to win these big races. And you can just forget about having fun on dirt. And so I think there's a couple of things that go in the equation there. This team is built for him. He's getting paid quite a bit of money already. The word I'm hearing is already more than a million dollars a year, plus getting all kinds of uh, uh, prize money and appearance fees to the cyclocross circuit, plus sponsorship deals on the side. So he's making plenty of cash already. You know, maybe he's not greedy. Maybe he wants to just enjoy his youth while he can. He feels like he has a big road ahead of him in terms of what he can do. Right now, the priority is the Olympics. You know, maybe next summer. You might get tempted by a big contract, but the word is right now he's going to honor this deal through 2022. Wait, you're telling me that uh, Patrick Lefevre over at Takuna Quickstep wouldn't be too keen on letting him go do like uh, bunny hops at mountain bike races and go get gnarly in the mud and cyclocross? That that wouldn't be part of the Patrick Lefevre contract? Not, not if you're getting paid $5 million a year. Sorry. <laughs> That's fair. Eh, you know, gotta gotta make some sacrifices. Well, I mean, I guess chapeau to him for staying true to wanting to do mountain bike and uh, cyclocross. Hey, look, I, I'm not gonna lie. As the road cycling fan in me, there's part of me that's part of me that would love to see him um, link up with a big world tour team, maybe even a lesser world tour team that has classics ambition and try to take someone to the promise, the, the, the classics promised land to have another, you know big player to try and take down to Kuna Quickstep at some of these races. But like you said, Hoodie, committing to that means giving up on mountain biking and giving up probably on cyclocross. Uh, I mean, Spencer, you have some pretty good intel on World Cup 
mountain biking right now. What do you think his chances are of taking down Nino Schurter at some of these World Cups and at the Olympics? I, I think his chances are quite good. He's proven up to the task of racing in the World Cups and at the World Championship level with, with Nino in the very best. He's been on the podium. He made the podium at Mountain Bike World Championships last, uh, last fall in September. And uh, he's yeah, he's got all the tools he needs. Sometimes it just comes down to a bit of luck. Sometimes it comes down to maybe not riding quite as far to the ragged edge as he likes to do because he has had some crashes that uh, that have knocked him out of a few races, given him like temporary injuries last season and specifically I'm thinking of. The other interesting dimension here beyond mountain biking is the cyclocross thing because last week I talked to Lars Bohm, who has fo followed a sort of similar path um, as that of uh, Vanderpool about 10 years ago, which is kind of an interesting parallel. He also won uh, the Dutch Road National Championships in, in one of his final years as a cyclocross star, and he was also a cyclocross world champion. And he did end up getting lured to the world tour, going from the Rabobank Continental team to their world tour team. And speaking with Lars Bohm last week, I got some interesting insight in that he thinks, in fact, he would have been better off if he'd continued to race cross with some degree of regularity as he was in the world tour. He, he thought that just strictly in terms of the physiology, it, it gave him a lot of, a lot of uh, the strength he needed to, to win races, to win to win to win time trials that sort of thing he's he said he 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 said his words were he regretted not continuing to race cyclocross and uh, the other point he made to me too was in the case of Vanderpool with mountain biking with cross he feels it's important to include that those racing disciplines if you're able and if you're interested in it because keep things fun and and that I think is a factor for those guys and not getting too burnt out on it and I believe I've heard some of that from Vanderpool's camp just that he wants to he wants to make sure he's doing what he loves and he doesn't want to just have a nose to the grindstone pro road career that's strictly driven by the millions and millions of euros that let you live in far-flung locations like uh, Mallorca wow. or uh, you know the Cote d'Azur and drive around in Ferraris and things like that it's a yeah that lifestyle's lame nobody yeah. nobody wants to do that come on that's not fun there's nothing fun about being a millionaire yeah I'd rather hang out in Coxida in the mud and get uh, yeah. beer, beer, beer spilled on yeah. me by a bunch uh, yeah. of Belgians. Salt of the earth, you know? Salt of the earth. God well, bless him. As as uh, much joy as you see him riding with sometimes at these cyclocross races, I guess I could see that, you know, when you, you have a uh, four-minute advantage to Toon Ertz and, uh, you know, Wout Van Ert behind and you're able to just, like, do wheelies and, you know, jump off of tabletops, I guess it's hard to put a price. It's hard to put a price on having experiences like that. Yeah, and you got to think Toon Ertz was watching Amstel Gold on Sunday, just so excited that, that Vanderpool is winning with such emphatic with with such an emphatic attack saying yeah finally I'm going to get rid of this guy he's going to go to the pro road see you later well it's interesting Spencer what you said about uh, just getting burned out on the road I mean compare Vanderpool and his kind of youthful effervescence he has right now compare that to Peter Sagan who's a guy uh, we saw abandon the race yesterday. I mean, it's one of the rare times I've ever seen Peter Sagan get out of the saddle in a race that, you know, wasn't hampered by a crash or a uh, mechanical. And you got to wonder, you know, what's going on in Peter Sagan's world? You know, here comes Vanderpool kind of doing the same thing Peter Sagan was doing, you know, five, eight years ago, just kind of blowing everybody out of the water. And you have to almost wonder maybe, you know, is Peter Sagan – 
feeling that kind of brunt of the road. I mean, what it takes to win a race these days, you got to sacrifice everything. You know, they're sending Peter Sagan up to, up to uh, altitude. You know, Peter Sagan's a guy who has so many different skills. He just likes to have fun on the bike as well. And you almost wonder if they got to squeeze everything out of these guys. Sometimes the fun is squeezed out as well. So if Vanderpool wants to uh, maybe do some dirt and some gravel and whatever else to do, you know, why not? Yeah. And Sagan's definitely hinted that he's getting a little burnt out on road. He's, he's threatened to just go back to racing mountain bikes and, uh, well, who knows? He does whatever he wants, right? So uh, I did a little informal poll when I was hanging out with our good friends at the USA Cycling Development Center, riding around with these uh, teenagers. And I asked them, all right, guys, who's cooler right now, Matthew Vanderpool or Peter Sagan? And I got to say, overwhelmingly, they said it was Matthew Vanderpool. There was only one vote in the Peter Sagan camp. Whoa. Yeah, I know. Oh, man. So even the kids these days, they're they're hip to Matthew Vanderpool. Yeah. You know, he's, he's real authentic. Yeah, yeah, he just... Dude, giving giving them the content they crave. <laughs> well, you know, it's Matthew Vanderpool's world. I think we're just kind of living in it right now. But a storyline that we're going to be following through the rest of the year is how he does in these mountain bike races. And yeah, whether or not he decides to come around and race some on the road at the end of the year, I would love to see him suit up for the Road World Championships. Heck yeah. Um, you know, it might be tricky to schedule, but, um, you know, he's he's on another plane right now. I think... I think cycling wants to see more of Matthew Vanderpool. I get a hoodie over there. He wants to see more of uh, Matthew Vanderpool. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, this is just the kind of excitement that, that road racing reads, needs right now. We don't really have, you know, beyond Peter Sagan, who is, you know, infinitely popular, we don't really have a rider who is just kind of capturing the imagination of, of fans really across the world. And it's performances like this that are really going to, I think, energize the fans as well as uh, everyone involved in the sport. So it's great to see just a race like this completely upside down on Sunday to turn out the way it did. Well put, Hoodie. Well, we are going to talk about the women's Amstel race coming up right after this break. Uh, we're back. So, Spencer, you know, the men's race was extremely exciting with Matthew Vanderpool. But one thing that's always going to stand out to me about this Amstel Gold race was like we saw two amazing races. We saw a great men's race, but the women's race was so exciting because of the cat and mouse chase between Kashanui Adoma and Anamik Van Vluten, because of how tactical it was in the last 20K. Um, you know, I just thought that this women's race had all of the elements of bike racing mm -hmm. that you'd like to see. Yeah, it's just so cool when you've got that down to the wire, will they, won't they scenario, your classic, you know, 90s rom-com movie yeah. where it's just, you don't know what's going to happen until the very end. And also, Kasia Nibidioma is just awesome. She's a cool person. She's fun, talkative, very friendly, and she rides with a lot of panache. Yeah, and so she has had some big wins over the years, but really this Amstel victory marks a huge turning point for her, and, and I wrote a column today on villainies.com explaining why this is actually a pretty big breakthrough win for her. She has been a rider who's been on the sports radar for a long time. She's very talented. She has the skills to succeed at these um, Ardennes races. She's a great climber, but she's a real punchy climber. But the thing is, is that for the last few years, you know, she told me this when I did the magazine feature on her, uh, she's been held back by both pressure, the pressure that she puts on herself at these specific races, and by, you know, she's a real freewheeling, like, like 
free-hearted type person who doesn't want to wait until she doesn't want to attack at the time when everyone is supposed to attack. Like she doesn't, you know, flesh will own. Everyone knows that the, the move is going to come at the base of the Miradihui. She doesn't like that. She wants to go the climb before that. She um, sort of bucks the tradition around the strategies of some of these races. Yeah. And, and one of her biggest wins of her career actually came from that kind of crazy long bomb suicide attack where she attacked to win the first stage of the OVO women's tour back in 2017, held on to the very end to win the overall and kind of a, it was kind of crazy. And that was, uh, that was vintage Niwi Adoma, but I think things have started to change a little. Yeah. Another big win was last year at Trofeo Alfredo Binda, yeah. which is a yeah. rainy, miserable day. And like she attacked and got the gap, but she didn't just hold it. She kept attacking and attacking and attacking and attacked her team director. And he was like, it was weird. It was like, she was attacking herself even though she was in this solo move and she races with a ton of panache but in some situations that has held her back we've seen her attack herself out of the races so I was pretty psyched to see you know this front group of women rumbling into Valkenburg where they have the attack up the Cowberg and you know the women's course uses the old men's course where the finish line is about 2k from the summit of the Cowberg which means you know she who gets a gap on the Cowberg, it's not a done deal. It's, you know, there's a cat and mouse that goes on. And so Nui Adoma, uh, you know, there was, it looked like everyone was waiting to see who was going to put in that fr that big move. And it was not going to be Anna Vanderbregen. Anna Vanderbregen, the defending champion. Well, actually, no, Anna Vanderbregen, who we thought was going to be winning, she rolled off the front. She put in a big move to try and set up uh, her teammate, your your cow who came over from the Cape Backbook from the, from mountain bike racing. Yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say this, by the way. Annika Longvod riding to fourth place. Yeah. Unbelievable. I yeah. mean, coming right off of Sea Otter Classic, I saw her there, and she just dominated the XC races. and. Who knew? I, I guess that's a good tune-up for Amstel Gold Race. She's Bulls a protected rider, but it was Niwi Adoma who put in the big move. Uh, Mariana Voss went with her, got blown out of the water halfway up the Cowberg. Annemiek van Vluten missed the initial jump, but had to kick it into high gear. I mean, she's the best climber and time trialist in the peloton, and she gave chase. Niwi Adoma had a pretty good-sized gap by the top of the Cowberg, and, you know, I expected to see van Vluten reel her back in the same way van Vluten reeled in Anna van der Breggen at La Course. Um, but the gap just kind of held there. Nui Adoma didn't look back. She just put her head down and really chugged it out for the 2Ks or so and held on. But I mean, it was real close. It was a thrilling finish, but chapeau to her for for keeping it going, for keeping her head down. And, you know, it was. I feel like it was one of those feel-good wins, too, where you saw a lot of people on social media giving Nui Adoma kudos, including her um, competitors because of the way that she won. And also, Fred, I think it's great because this is just one more major team that's got a world tour win to their name this season, or to their credit, I mean. You pointed that out in the story you wrote for today, and it's just a great example of how much parity right now there is in the women's world tour peloton between teams, where you've had five different winners from five different teams winning these women's world tour races. And that makes for exciting uh, an exciting day of racing, no matter what, what day it is, whether it's Amstel or, or any of the other major events, especially the ones coming up. Yeah, and I heard some perspective from women about that, too. I did some stories on VeloNews.com about why there's more parity and how it's shifting the dynamics and the racing. You know, the first year of the Women's World Tour, I think Bowles swept, Bowles Dolman swept the opening six races. Oh, they crushed it. Last year, they won, I believe, four of the opening seven races. Um, they have, you know, very strong riders. But what's 
happened this year is you have the new Trek Segafredo women's team. That has been a good collection of talent. You have um, Canyon SRAM is racing more aggressively. And, you know, some of the comments I got from, got from some of the women is like, yeah, okay, the talent is more evenly distributed. But really, there's just more confidence within some of these women's teams to take on Bowles Dolmans. Uh, in years past, and this is what I heard from some of the women, was that Bowles was winning so much that the other teams just uh, kind of deferred to them and looked to them mm. to set the tempo and set the dynamic in some of these races. And that's just not happening this year. And so that has led to more exciting racing, more unpredictable racing, and just a, just a more even uh, set a competition in the women's world tour. So I'm psyched on it. Uh, you know, I think it's a it's a great thing for women's racing. Yeah, and there's going to be some great races to come this week with Flesh Wallone on Wednesday and Liège-Bastogne-Liège on Sunday, of course. Yeah, no, great block of, uh, of racing, the Ardennes Classics. And so, you know, I this, this block of racing... Uh, really look to big be the big showdown between Bulls Dolmans and Annemiek van Vluten. Um, Annemiek van Vluten, best climber in the bunch, has won the Giro in years past. Um, she's never really been on tip-top form for this block of racing. I talked to her a few weeks ago about the importance of this block of racing, about her rivalry with Anna van der Bregen, about a bunch of different topics. And we're going to play that interview now. Um, we're going to pick up in the interview about midway through it. And, you know... <laughs> The, the audio, I, Spencer, I had audio problems again. Oh, no. I really? Know, what know. happened? It just, uh, the Skype machine didn't want to work. So midway through, we had, to, we had to change audio. But it's not, you know, hey, listen in. She has some great insight. And uh, I think you guys are going to enjoy this conversation with Annemiek van Vluten. Let's hear from her. So, Anamik, you've talked about this year your big focus being on the Ardennes block of racing, that being the Amstel Gold Race, La Flèche Wallonne, and Liège-Bastogne-Liège. These are hilly, hard, one-day races, and you have not won any of these races yet, despite your accolades around um, the Giro and the Olympics and the World Championships. Um, First of all, what, how would you describe your relationship with these races in general? Oh, I love them. And I talk to them every year. And every year, um, I don't, I'm not at the level I am in, in from May on. So I'm always a slow starter into the season and someone that's growing into the season. And maybe I have the highest level in the end of the year. Uh, maybe it has also something to do with that, that after the, in my off season, I usually don't touch my bike for four weeks. Maybe that period is a bit, a little bit too long for me. I don't know. Um, but I think it's also very good mentally and physically. So I will still do it. And I will also uh, like to enjoy my life without a bike at least one month a year. Um, but yeah, those races, they're um, really high on my wish list. And actually, actually, together with Strada Bianchi and those races were, I, I had a talk with my coach before I crashed, like that I really, really, really wanted this year to be at my best level in our dance. And uh, we tried to make a plan uh, how to achieve that. Uh, actually, we had to change the plan completely after I uh, <laughs> broke my uh, leg. But um yeah, that something happened this year that um, I think that I'm I'm in a better, yeah I feel like I'm in a better level than uh, years before. So uh, I, I look forward actually to those races to uh, to see what what can happen this year. In the past few years, these races have always been very 
interesting from a tactical standpoint because you've seen front groups with multiple riders from Bulls Dolmans in them and Bulls has had uh, incredible success at these races um, not just because Anna has been very strong but I feel also because tactically they've had they've been able to control races um, how do you hope to win these races knowing that Bulls has a history of being very tactically smart and very strong at these events? Uh, I think, um, yeah, first of all, set up myself. I feel that I'm in a, my level is, is just the best I had since the last eight years. Um, so if I look at my numbers at the moment, uh, and also think like my team is uh, developing. So um, I think Amanda Spett, uh, last year silver medal uh, winner in the World Championships, uh, stepped up um, not only last year, but is, is, is developing herself. Um, so my team is growing and growing, and uh, you can also see that Desi actually at the UCI ranking, I think, um, I think maybe for 2019 ranking, we are now the number one. Um, but I, yeah, I have to admit that uh, Bulls is a team that they play, um, they play with their numbers. They are tactically strong, uh, and um, yeah, it's um, it will be uh, it makes it interesting. I'm I think it's it's a good it's a good thing that they play so tactically strong. It's good for in the cycling. You see, it's stepping up. Um, sometimes it tactical skills, the women's cycling, women's cycling is a little bit behind, so uh, it's good that uh, there are some teams that uh, that are developing in a tactical way, and I think also in my team uh, we are stepping up uh, on this point, so um, yeah, that makes me even more um, more interesting, also in uh, having a track Segafredo uh, women's team this year, also a really strong team uh, adding, so I think we have now we can play the game with six, seven, eight uh, big teams now uh, in the finals. And uh, yeah, when I just started fighting, there were only three. In 2018, we wrote about the rivalry between Bulls Dolmans and Mitchelton Scott, and specifically of Anna van der Breggen and Annemiek van Vluten, the two best cyclists in, in all of women's cycling. You know, how would you describe your current relationship with Anna van der Breggen? Um, are you friends? Are you competitors? Are you teammates? What, how would you describe it? I think we're really good colleagues. Um, have a lot of respect for each other. Um, and respect in that Anna is just a different type of rider, a different type of personality compared to me. Um, but both uh, we are at the top level and both achieve our goals, uh, but in a different way. And uh, I think we, uh, yeah, we have a lot of respect for each other, but also send sometimes uh, each other methods. And I just also followed now, for example, the, the Cape Epics he was doing, and I said, like, oh, good luck. And uh, uh, also followed a bit like every day what she was uh, achieving there together with uh, Annika Langfast and uh, um, yeah it's it's, um, it's it's cool that uh, to follow her and um, I think it's also really good for for women cycling to have a bit of rivalry maybe um, maybe I I wish that Anna was from a different country because that would have make it also maybe sometimes more interesting and uh, sometimes also less um annoying for the both of us because uh the people from the media like to set up a big rivalry between anna and me which yeah for sure um we all both wanted to win in the world championships but uh, we both were very very not happy with uh how the media was 
um, yeah, writing about it. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe also for women cycling, it would be better if we were both from a, from, <laughs> a, from different countries. But uh, yeah, I think um, uh, I'm a top athlete, and um, I think she she also thinks about me the same. But uh, I think also there are so many more strong women. So that was also why we were both a bit annoyed about that. It's it looked like there's only Alamik and uh, Anna whereas women's cycling is about but uh, so many more strong uh, girls uphill Effie Moorman Kasia Nivedoma uh, I think we underestimate the level of women's cycling if you say it's only about me and Anna Does it make for a challenging relationship to know that your competitors for most of the year and then once a year or twice a year in the national team format you are working for each other and wanting the other person to win does that create a uh, challenging dynamic for you too yeah for sure uh, I think also we had some good uh, talks about that uh, with the two of us and we spoke to each other like hey uh, it's sometimes good to, to be open about it like for sure we both want to win but we also bo both don't want that someone else is uh, going uh, to win the world championship so um, yeah, it's clear for us that this, if there would be one of us up the road the other one is not going to chase and uh, we talked about that and yeah for sure that's what I said like I would love to be that Anna was maybe from a different uh, country but yeah it is what it is and actually it's also not only with me and Anna but uh, to be uh, Dutch is very uh, very hard in the world championships uh, because there's so many more strong girls it's uh, crazy our team and uh um, yeah, especially next year in Yorkshire, we have way more girls that can win the World Championships title. So it's, um, I think about being professional, and I think we're uh, we all show that we're really uh, professional, take our responsibilities, and um, yeah, we know what's possible if you're teammates and what's not possible. And uh, yeah, you just have to deal with the situation and be a professional. And I think. Uh, yeah, everyone in the Netherlands, in the team of the Netherlands, is is uh, super professional. How much of those um, these elements, you know, altitude camps, being efficient in the in the pack, everything like that, do you think have contributed to the huge step up that you seem to take in uh, sort of 2015, 2016? You know, you have, have been racing uh, in the pro women's field for a number of years, but it really did seem like in that season you made some really big strides forward and i'm curious looking back on it now where you think the uh, the roots of that big step up uh have come from i think the main step main reason is that i left uh, the team of marianne voss i was in in uh, i was her teammate uh, six years and Especially when I joined uh, Orca at that time, they if you leave the team you, and you join a new team, and usually a new team signs you with a, a plan, and they have a plan for you, and they had a plan with me, uh, and they they challenged me. But uh, in the Rabobank, it was not necessary to challenge me because we had already Pauline van Amstel and Anna van der Breggen and Marianne Vos, so we didn't need another climber. So they for sure they were not challenging me to to target those races. Um, so nothing negative about them, but it was just not necessary. And then uh, you sign with a new team. Uh, they have a plan with you. They have. Uh, they they gave me a lot of confidence that I should target Giro d'Italia. And uh, be 
But I said, like, no, I always heard, like, oh, you can win every race, but not the Giro. You're not a climber. And I heard that for, I think, six, seven years. You're not a climber. And then you start to believe in that, that you're really not a climber. Um, but then in Orca, um, and now Mr. Scott, um, yeah, they, re- they challenge me. They have a plan with me. Um, they uh, get me out of my comfort zone. Uh, also, to set some out of my comfort zone goals. And... Um, yeah, for example, also with the time trial day, and I joined the, the team camp, the first team camp in 2016, and the first day I was already in a wind tunnel testing on my wind, uh, on my position uh, on the time trial bike. So yeah, they also start to believe in it that you can maybe uh, one of the best time trialers, and um, if they put so much effort in it, and yeah, that really helped me to step up to join uh, Mr. Scott. But maybe apart from that. Uh, but the main thing is um, I also start altitude camps and to work with my coach mm-hmm. um, yeah, and to improve. Um, I, I think in 2015, I started to do altitude. Um, and yeah, I think that's also it's part of the, the plan, how to achieve those goals that uh, the Mr. Scott team is setting for me. And then you have to make a plan with your coach how to achieve those goals. And um, yeah, one of the key success factors in that is uh, yeah, to do a lot of more climbing, more altitude camps, which is related to also more climbing um, and yeah, periodization. Interesting. Okay. How many more years do you see yourself continuing with the sport? As long as I like it. Um, yeah. And especially because I had last year my best season ever. Uh, it makes you hungry to continue because it's it's something I really still uh, love to do. Uh, especially the last years, I I get a lot of freedom in my uh, team to Scott. Um, they don't force me to do all the races uh, that are on the program. So they give me a little bit of freedom to go to altitude to prepare uh, myself. Um, I feel very happy in the team also, just with the girls, with the staff, I have a lot of fun. So it's not, actually I I think I'm way more relaxed last three, four years than I was before. Before I was always watching my watts and um, also in a general uh, just endurance ride, I want to target a certain amount of average watts. And But I, I'm i way more relaxed now. I'm enjoying way more the time on the bike and off the bike. Uh, also I have sometimes a lunch stop during my long rides um, because I know it, it it's maybe not 100% optimal to have, for example, a bunch stop, but I really like it. And it makes me a happy person. And I really believe in as long as you're a happy person and enjoying your job and enjoying riding your bike and don't force yourself into that you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to achieve a certain kind of what. It gives us so many stress factors in your life and in your cycling career. But I think for me, the key success factor is that I still love is that I am, uh, yeah, I really... I found a way how to really enjoy it and not to be so stressed about all kind of things that in the end doesn't make you really faster. And um, yeah, I really think happy cyclists perform better. Well, Spencer, you know, I'm going to keep my eye on Annemiek van Vluten for the rest of the classics. We have uh, La Flèche Wallonne and we have Liège Beston Liège coming up. And I think she's going to win at least one race throughout this block. So, you know, before we get out of here, 
We do have Liège on Sunday. There is the new finish. We've talked a lot about this. They moved the finish from the uphill Dragon Ons to a more flat finish in downtown Liège. One of my one of my favorite cities mm. in all of Europe. Yeah, the McDonald's. Oh. The McDonald's is exquisite. Though. Yeah, that uh, soccer stadium that looks like uh, a factory where they make boxes. Yeah, I think that's where they shot the second uh, the second movie of the Hunger Games uh, trilogy. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all the all the old like uh, pipes and a bit uh, uh, yeah. Liege, poor Liege. Wait, but shouldn't we talk about Flesh Wallone? I mean, who's going to win that? Uh, you mean the Valverde uh, Grand Fondo? Oh yeah, you're right. He'll yeah. Uh, Philippe is looking good too. Uh, Let's talk about Liege. Yeah. Though. Let's make some. <laughs> Liege predictions. Yeah, okay, yeah. let's do a little uh, women's and men's predictions oh, yeah. for Liege. So I'll start us off. I think that Annemiek van Vluten is going to do it. I think she's going to win the women's liege Besson liege It's been on her list for a while, and she's looking very strong right now. For the men's race, that's it's a tougher one. Mm. I mean, you pick Peter Sagan, he dropped out of Amstel Gold Roost. <sighs> I mean, you never want to count him out, though. You, you never, never, ever count out Rick Van Avermet. He really needs a win. He is thirsty, so yeah. thirsty right now. No, I'm not going to pick either one of those. I'm going to pick my main man, Jakob Fuglesang. I thought no. he looked real strong. Get out of here. Yeah, Jakob. Uh, I'm going to go with Jakob Fuglesang. He needs a big win. Oh, Career defining classic. I know. Sneer at me. Uh, if it was the old finish, yes. Yeah. He can't sprint his way out of a wet paper bag with scissors in his hands. <laughs> well, we're just going to have to wait and see, Spencer. Yes, we will. So give me your predictions and stop, you know, making fun of me to the good listeners. Okay. Uh, my prediction, Liège-Baston-Liège for the women's race, I, um, I'm not certain. We don't have the complete start list yet. But I'm thinking, I'm thinking Lizzie Dynan. She was racing aggressive at Amstel, and I think that maybe she'll pull it out and uh, and sprint to her first big victory in, in a couple of years. I would love to see that. It's a bit of a dark horse pick, but I'm going to say Lizzie Dynan. I like it. And for the men's race, I have to go with, um, well, yeah, Alaphilippe would be a pretty solid pick, uh, and he's obviously on terrific form. But I think for me, I'm going to go with Michal Kwiatkowski because he looked really good in the end of Amstel there. He knows his way around a small bunch sprint finish. And uh, I just like I just like watching him race. He's just got great style. I like how both of us have kind of hipster picks. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah well. We were like, uh, oh, Alejandro Valverde or Julian Alaphilippe? No. Hey, we said we said Valverde for flesh. Yeah, that's true. That's a consensus pick. Jakob Fuglesang. Well, thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the podcast. It's good to be back here with you, Spencer. Again, good to be back. For yeah. any, any listeners who are in the uh, Roubaix area, keep an eye out for my stolen bike, probably delivering pizzas as we speak right now. Uh, but if you would like to uh, give us some feedback on what we talked about today, you can email us at webletters at villainies.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on villainies.com. Subscribe to the Villainies podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Villainews on Facebook at facebook.com slash magazine. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash News. The Villainews podcast is produced by Villainews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the Villainews podcast are those of the individual. And as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo Blah playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums. Yeah.